BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ah, the sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the TakeCast. My name is Davis Maddock. You guys can find me on Twitter at Davis Maddock. In this episode of the show, I am joined by Chase Devins, who is a research analyst at Masari.io. You might remember Eric Turner from Masari was on the program a few weeks ago and uh, that conversation was very interesting and went very well. So wanted to bring in someone else with a, a wide breadth of knowledge about the cryptocurrency space. I definitely think Chase fits that bill and and honestly, he just answered a lot of questions I have about network and application protocols inside of the world of, uh, of crypto because I find all of that stuff fascinating and I think you guys will really enjoy the knowledge that Chase brings to the table. Uh, if you want to support the show, you can always get bonus episodes on patreon.com slash takecast or you can simply support by leaving a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now let's go ahead and get into the show. All right, everyone, welcoming in Chase Devins from Masari. We had Eric Turner from Masari on a few weeks ago, and uh, I, I thought that conversation went really well. And as you guys know, I'm always very curious about things going on in, in crypto that I don't understand. And so, so Chase offered his services to let me uh, pester him for a little bit this afternoon. So Chase, thank you very much for, for joining the program. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Davis. Um, so before we, you know, before we get into any of the nitty gritty, why don't you just explain a little bit of what your role is with Masari and kind of what you work with on a daily basis? For sure. Um, so to start off, you know, Masari is, we're leading market intelligence platform and we provide in-depth crypto research analysis, data, diligence tools, and more for crypto business professionals. Uh, I sit on the enterprise research team. So most of my day is spent reading and writing just about what's going on in the, the general crypto ecosystem. Um, I got into crypto in, I was like spring of 2020, um, just kind of fell in love with the ethos and technology of it um, and joined Masari full-time last August. So been here about eight months now. And I primarily specialize in DeFi research and then have lately taken up an interest in all things staking. Okay, so staking is uh, is going to be kind of what we we dig our teeth into here, because you know staking is very popular, right? And and there is both you know network staking and application staking. Uh, you know, of course, the the eternal debate 
in, in Ethereum right now is lots of people want to move to Ethereum 2, which would be proof of stake instead of proof of work. But obviously, um, you know, inside of decentralized finance, pretty much all of these platforms offer staking as a way to incentivize, you know, you to, to move your wealth onto their site to keep it there and you are paid. So, and, and I think a lot of people are able to grasp that, but, and, and I, I include myself amongst this, what is actually the function of staking? What am I doing when I log on to, you know, Terra or whatever? And I say, okay, I'm going to stake X amount of this token. Like, what am I contributing to the ecosystem and why does the ecosystem want me to stake? Yeah, so I, I think you highlighted that there's a difference between network staking and application level staking. So we'll start with network level because um, to me that's that's more important. Um, and staking at the network level is a security mechanism for the protocol. So you know, with Bitcoin and other proof of work networks, you're essentially burning external resources. Um, in Bitcoin's case, energy to provide security to the network. Um, but with proof of stake, you're taking assets that are already existing within the network and you're recycling them to provide the network with its security. So that's why um, it's more of like a long-term sustainable model. Um, and so users that stake the network's native token, they're gonna gain the ability to uh, participate in the network's consensus process is what we call it. Okay. And so what that is, is basically you're um, in charge of ordering and processing the transactions in line with the network's rules. Um, most of the time, you're probably just going to be watching others doing it, um, making sure that they're obeying the rules. Um, and you know, if you're caught misbehaving, um, or let's say you authorize someone to double spend their funds or you're offline, you're gonna usually have your staked assets slashed as a penalty in most networks. Now, some layer ones like Avalanche and Cardano, for example, they have some very uh, unique consensus mechanisms that um, allow them to operate on honesty assumptions. But still, the general point is the network's native assets are what fuels the security. Um, an analogy I like to use is thinking of staking similar to like a security deposit for a home rental. Um, you know, you take care of your house, and that's equivalent to obeying the network's consensus rules. But if you cause damage or misbehave, uh, the landlord is going to find out and ultimately they'll take part of your security deposit away. Um, the one like amendment I would have to this analogy is the fact that your um, your landlord is super nice. And if you do take care of, of the house and keep it in tip top shape, they're even going to pay you to do that. Which is is fairly interesting. So that I guess my my question, my follow-up question then would be, I, I understand how proof of work works, right? It's you are, I mean, from a very literal perspective, you are paying for the energy at your house or your mining facility or whatever, and that energy is converted into security for the network. So I I guess I guess maybe where my brain is just failing to comprehend is like what what is is there work being provided to the network through the stake like am i am i functioning as a node where i'm verifying like my my portion of the blockchain where i'm staked is providing um you know like confirming transactions like at, like what is that blockchain interaction like with with this with the staked tokens yeah so what you just said about um operating a node we 
we refer to those as validators in proof of stake. Right. And so depending on the amount of assets that you have staked, um, that increases the likelihood that you'll be in charge of uh, validating the next set of transactions. And if you're chosen to do that by the network, which is um, just done by random algorithms, like I said, based off of that proportional amount you have staked, then you're rewarded with the block rewards. Um, same thing as, as Bitcoin with either inflationary rewards um, or transaction fees, and sometimes a combination of both. So that's that's pretty, I mean, that's, that's fairly straightforward. So, you know, the, there are there are lots of opportunities to stake, right? I mean, you can stake your you can stake NFTs, you can stake uh, looks rare rewards, you can stake uh, you know USDC or whatever, and you I mean you can even do it on on more corporate levels, like you can stake uh, stable coins on BlockFi, you can stake future Ethereum on Coinbase and on other sites, you know the ETH two. So my I I am concerned. I am one of the people that would have concerns that Ethereum changing to proof of stake would make the network less secure and provide an undue amount of power over the network to a smaller group of of individuals and and maybe that's wrong right because there are are there not that many ethereum validators that exist is that correct it's something like there's like a thousand and eighty two ethereum nodes and maybe it would even be more distributed if the network did change proof of stake, do I do I have those details uh, roughly correct? Yeah, I'm I'm not uh, super in the weeds on kind of the distribution of the, sure, sure. the miners right now, but I know that you know the validators for Ethereum um, are 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 pretty dispersed, um, and you know there's a lot of different protocols that are encouraging the decentralization of the network. Um, one of them, for example, is is Rocket Pool. Uh, and essentially they allow anyone with 16 ether to uh, pool their their ether with other people's and run a validator within the protocol themselves. Um, so it lowers the barrier to entry and allows more people to participate because you know the the standard minimum to validate on ethereum is 32 eth um, and over time we can expect like the dollar cost of that to probably increase. Um, but with this Ethereum in particular, it's also designed so that validation can occur on um, a device as, as small as like a Raspberry Pi computer, um, where a lot of these other networks are, um, they have greater requirements such as Solana. Um, you have to have like some pretty powerful computers um, and capital in order to start one of those validators. So while like the the merge and the transition over will probably be a little rocky i think um yeah. i think ethereum in particular is set up for um decentralization in the long term and you know we also with with proof of work mining you see the um the centralization of like the different mining pools um and obviously like that's a big topic for bitcoin um but i mean in, in ethereum's current state it's just as much of a problem um so I think in the long run, this will ultimately be a move towards greater decentralization for Ethereum. Which is, you know, the, I, well, it's hard for me to say if that is a minority viewpoint or not, because most of the time when you hear talk about Ethereum switching to proof of stake, it's actually not from Ethereum people, but it's from Bitcoin people who, you know, insinuate that a change to proof of stake would be the opposite, that it would be a, a big move 
towards centralization. And my thought has sort of been, you know, maybe that would have been true three years ago, right? Mm -hmm. When when Ethereum was was really new, the people who had access to the pre-mine had not, you know, realized millions and millions of dollars of wealth. You know, think about the people who were involved in the Ethereum pre-mine buying it you know, eight cents a token or whatever. And, and it's April, it's the afternoon of April 12th right now. And, you know, Ethereum is trading roughly around $3,000. And so, uh, and, and, and also I don't think it can be overlooked the fact that NFTs are like kind of the most popular thing in crypto right now. And those largely are settled in Ethereum. And I think that probably has done quite a good job at, at moving the wealth of Ethereum around at least now still you know relative to people who who transact in US dollars obviously it's much smaller but i i do i do think you are probably correct that the there would be more people willing to join into staking ethereum 2.0 than there are people willing to pony up whether it be in in rocket pool or just have the 32 ethereum needed to run a validator node like i i think certainly you would have more inputs to the network via proof of stake than the proof of work and, and the mining that exists right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I really like, um, sorry, I, I really like what you were saying there. Um, just about like three years ago, it would have been like a completely different story. Um, and if, if you look three years out, we're probably going to be having this conversation again and being like, um, you know, like, looking back, it, it just seems so obvious. Um, ultimately, like we can't really predict the future with all of this because, you know, the whole space is so new. Um, it's almost more of like an art letting the stuff develop rather than a science. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it could go multiple different ways, but yeah, that's just my personal preference. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, to be like, uh, you know, it's my podcast, I can say whatever I want. I, I tend to buy a lot of the arguments about proof of work more, but I am, I, I guess the thing is I'm much more intellectually curious about proof of stake and what a network would be that, that worked on proof of stake. I mean, what are there are, I, I literally don't even know the answer to this question. Are there, you know, secondary crypt, like layer one solutions? Like, I, I don't know, does Cardano work on proof of stake? Do any of these, um, you know, uh, layer ones that are kind of Ethereum competitors, do any of them run on proof of stake as of right now? Yeah. So the, the vast majority of um, all smart contract networks, like you said, Solana, Cardano, Avalanche, pretty much any headline name that you hear, they're going to be running on a form of, of proof of stake consensus. And um, like that's become the dominant form because it's just a lot less energy intensive. You know, you're not just burning uh, through energy every single day in, in order to, to secure the network. You know, like I said, you're recycling the resources that are already inside of it. Um, what I do think proof of work has as an advantage over proof of stake is its distribution is really effective. And so I think that Ethereum starting off as a proof of work network for the first, what, like seven years or so has been really great um, in order to kind of like decentralize um, where all the ether is held within the network. Like you were saying, like there's so many different applications you can do through DeFi um, and with NFTs, you know, spending your ETH. Um, I think just being able to start from there um, 
off of like a proof of work basis is going to allow Ethereum to achieve a greater level of decentralization overall than these networks that bootstrap themselves from proof of stake at the start and are just distributing their new rewards to um, people that already hold tokens in the network. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, again, to be, to be forthright, like I, I don't particularly, I'm, I'm not that interested in Solana and in Cardano, not because I don't think that those chains can't do great things. You know, you could build all this amazing stuff on Solana. You could build uh, all this amazing stuff on Cardano, on Avalanche. And, um, you know, people who are, are smarter than me and, and know more about the, the crypto world than me are, are fairly bullish on some of those chains. But I, I guess I, I maybe sort of view those layer ones that started out heavily in proof of stake and heavily rewarding people who got in very early more as corporations, right? More as, as businesses where they are using this acquired wealth to achieve a means to an end as opposed to the means as in the smart contract and the chain being the the purpose in and of itself i mean and maybe that's and maybe that's wrong but that is sort of how it feels to me i mean is, is that do you think that's off close to the truth off base but where are you at on that uh no i think that's a a fair take to have um and you know a lot of these newer proof of stake chains had early vc money coming into them um, and that's always a a common uh point of interest for for people discussing these um in terms of you know, viewing them kind of as like the corporations, I think, I think that's fair. Um, but I also think my, my personal view is that decentralization is a spectrum. Um, and, yeah, and I agree you know, for, with that. For, I, I for, think that is fair. For some cases, like Solana is probably the most talked about for this. I think there is just enough decentralization to get to the point of like censorship resistance that will matter in a, a good bulk of use cases. Um, so in terms of like validator centralization and stuff with regards to that network, um, for, for many use cases, I don't think it matters that much in terms of real world adoption. Now, if you're doing something as ambitious as like starting an entire like country, a network state on top of um, one of these networks, like, yeah, you're going to want to prioritize decentralization from the start. And um, just really big picture ideas like that, I think, are, are critical um, to keep decentralization at the forefront of our minds. Yeah, and I, I agree with that as well, which I, I think is maybe not that popular of, of an opinion that decentralization exists on a spectrum, like either it is or it isn't. Um, and, and, you know, with, uh, I, the older you get, the more you realize that everything in life is a little bit a shade of gray and there's, there's very rarely, you know, right or wrong answers to anything, which is, I mean, something I certainly struggle with in, in terms of, you know, just realizing that not everything's right, not everything's wrong. Um, so that is, is kind of an overview on net network staking, right? But there is a, a big difference between network staking and application staking and obviously uh it, it maybe not so much like today but the last like six months or so it has been a great time to stake you know anything right usdc terra uh you know polygon tokens tezos tokens um which tezos is really interesting to me as um a proof of stake model with uh some delegation features but i mean i guess this is this is you would you would certainly i i think have an answer to this question i mean there, there is so much um, return to the staking user in all of these economies. And, and clearly we are in a, a global 
bull market if you if you really zoom out. I mean, you can be worried about inflation, you can be worried about uh, you know a hawkish Fed or whatever right now, but clearly we are in a, a global, relatively bullish market. And so, I, I my my question I suppose is just how how long can these staking models continue for all of these different tokens where you know you're you're getting paid ten percent return basically just to be a user of a given website. Yeah, so <laughs> there's there's a couple of different uh, points to dive into here. Uh, you had mentioned like Polygon and, and Tezos, so those ones would fall under like the network level staking, right? Um, as as like smart contract platforms, and so again, like that provides the network with security at at the application layer. Um, staking plays just a variety of, of different use cases. I kind of see the first use case, um, the broad general one, being a way for protocols to reduce the, the circulating supply um, of their token. And so what they'll do is, you know, they'll incentivize you uh, with more inflationary rewards for locking up your tokens for a certain amount of time. Um, like with, with Curve, for example, you can get the, the greatest uh, return on your investment by pledging your assets for four years, um, just continually doing that. But, you know, this, might reduce supply in the short run. However, we've seen with the explosion of yield farming in DeFi summer 2020, um, that this model is just not sustainable at all. Um, it ultimately just leads to compounded rewards for these stakers who immediately will sell the, the rewards onto the market um, and kill like the token price. So it's, it's not really um, like expanding the value of the ecosystem. Um, it's, it's a lot of, uh, just moving capital around, um, and then going to the point about, um, kind of like the excessive rewards. I know that the, the popular, um, point of topic right now is Terra and anchor, um, where you can get, I think it's like 20% yield on just staking your, um, UST. Now that one in specifically, um, Terra funds a lot of that through their marketing budget. Um, however, they do um, incorporate staking yields from other tokens that are locked into there and spread them out across the, uh, the UST depositors. Um, in terms of sustainability, um, obviously like these super high numbers aren't gonna be able to um, remain intact forever, but you know, I don't think any of these applications are really expecting that, you know, ultimately staking as a way for you to bootstrap um, an application uh, from the ground up and to get that capital into the system that you need. Um, and so over time, I know that we're expecting Terra to lower their yield um, in anchor to between like 10 and 15%. Um, I think it'll ultimately trend towards a sustainable rate that the network can provide. Um, and ultimately it will be higher than, you know, like traditional financial systems because we don't have intermediaries sucking the value out. Um, but I, th I think these ultra high APYs are just going to be a thing of maybe the next couple of years. Yeah. Like, uh, like, I mean, you know, you can, you can log into your, your decentralized finance, you know, platform of choice and see, you know, the, 1.1 million APY that exists for like three minutes or whatever. And it, and yeah. it flashes off like, you know, which and, is and, very and appealing often, to some people, right. To, to, to chase that. Often the, the quoted APY um, will be 
um, in terms of the the native token, the token. And what that price is at the given moment. So while it might be a thousand percent APY in one moment, as soon as a bunch of people just dump it onto the market, like you're still getting a bunch of that token, but the the dollar return on that is maybe like one to two percent after the price gets destroyed. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, there are also um, like uh, like crypto exchange tokens, right? Like uh, like there are, you know, Binance token is is one of them. Um, uh, and I, I think uh, I mean, there are there are others that kind of exist, like like Sushi Swap and and Uniswap mm -hmm. as well. And those are uh, I mean, this is something that I've done, but I didn't really understand, like staking a pair. So like staking the Ethereum pair with the Uniswap pairing. Um, so I, I did that for a while just because I was kind of curious as to as to how it works. Um, so when you are when you are providing liquidity for that pair, like like literally, this is this is a, I would love if you could answer this question. What was I doing when I provided the liquidity for that pair? Like what what function were my tokens serving inside of that pool? Yeah. So when you provide liquidity, you're essentially um, providing your funds into the market. Um, you're acting like it's an individual market maker for people who want to trade in and out of the pools uh, with with not a lot of slippage. So when you take that pair and you stake it onto another platform, you're essentially saying to the network, hey, like I'm locking up this liquidity, um, like I'm pledging to not pull it out um, and kind of reduce the overall liquidity in the market. And in return for doing that, you get what are called like these pool two rewards. So for example, you could take your um, ETH and let's say pickle token, Sure. Like you could provide liquidity to that pair in the mark uh, on Uniswap. You could take your LP token and you could go to Pickle, and you could lock it there, um, kind of saying like, "Hey, I am not going to rescind my liquidity um, until like I exit out of your system." And in return for doing that, Pickle will give you um, new Pickle rewards. And you know, this is the whole idea behind behind yield farming. Like everything can unravel extremely quickly. Um, like I said, like the, the prices of the tokens collapse, which leads to more people withdrawing their liquidity and then more people selling the tokens. And it's just kind of this unraveling death spiral. So there's been a move towards um, kind of like sustainable liquidity. Um, and so what protocols have started to do is they do what's called uh, bonding. And a lot of them will partner um, with Olympus DAO, and I'm, I'm not sure if your listeners are familiar with uh, Olympus and everything that happened with them, but essentially uh, protocols will now issue their token at a discount in return for um, the liquidity pair, and they'll buy it outright from the user rather than just kind of like uh, temporarily renting it from them. So no longer will the user be in charge of removing that liquidity pair the protocol will own it and you know it's in the protocol's best interest to have the liquidity always on so you know you know that the liquidity is not going to just disappear so i mean that was that was a good explanation as to as to what i was actually doing now I, and i i can't i cannot be the only one who who feels this way now there now clearly there are some of these application staking platforms that are going to do really well right and it seems like lots of people are betting on 
um, you know, Terra and Anchor and, and Luna and, and that ecosystem. But the there a lot of these a lot of these ecosystems are you know it's the it's the Jim shows Michael Scott that he's actually involved in a Ponzi scheme right or in the in the <laughs> in the pyramid scheme where like so you're getting paid to provide the liquidity but then when you decide to remove the liquidity there's actually nothing left backing it and um you know I mean I I think and this is. I, I've been in crypto for you know a relatively long time. Like I, I think I bought for the first time in 2014. So I've seen you know plenty of these things come and go in the the 2017 ICOs and anything. And you know I do think at at some point a big flush of all of these things where you know uh, you know some of the the micro cap stuff like truly goes to zero. Like you can't sell it. And uh, like, I, I think an exiting of a lot of this fake liquidity that uh, on paper or on chain exists, but it's kind of imaginary. I, I think in general, a flushing of that would be healthy for cryptocurrency, the idea. Maybe not healthy for a lot of the people that are hoping to get paid these APYs, but just for you know a true future where all these tokens work and have real world applications like the the staking should I, I essentially what i'm saying is staking should be offered in a much more realistic and straightforward way does that does that sound true to you um well i mean it's it's important to differentiate between providing liquidity um like to a given pair versus staking um, right which is just like locking your asset into the application um like I do agree that there's you know there's so much garbage out there in the crypto ecosystem and like a healthy wash <laughs> would be very great after the the past uh, year or so that we've had in the the bull run, um, but ultimately like no one is forcing you to provide liquidity to the market. Um, it's all just based for on sure um, market forces. Um, so in terms of of that, I don't think uh, there necessarily needs to be like a big flush out or anything it's because essentially your decision of when you own these assets you can either um, hold them in your wallet which is like obviously you're not facing any risk of of losing it in the market um, or you can provide it as liquidity or um, i don't know put it to use in like some other protocol um, so i think that ultimately like the market will continue dictating where all of this goes. And, you know, we've seen every single unsustainable uh, model just get exposed with a matter of time. Um, and, you know, we're, we're all constantly learning like what does and what doesn't work. Um, and I think for the most part, we've seen that a lot of these models just don't really work for, for sustainability long-term. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're right. So kind of a, a corresponding conversation is there are lots of competing layer one solutions to to Bitcoin and Ethereum right now, and we've already we've already mentioned some of them: Cardano, Solana. Um, so I guess I, I I the the question I sort of have about these competing chains is, you know, what what is the goal of these you know quote unquote uh, what, what are they called Ethereum killers and and things like that? <laughs> like, are they trying to be the smart contract platform? Are they trying to be money are you know what what is what is sort of the goal of these you know let's say uh top 10 in market cap chains that are not bitcoin or ethereum yeah i so i think that they all do a mixture of 
kind of all of the above that you were saying. Um, like first and foremost, I see uh, all these platforms kind of designed to be uh, economic platforms to build upon, very general, um, as you mentioned. But you know, as their assets operating as the native payment um, to make the platform itself run and the assets provided a security function in the form of staking, they don't really fit nicely into any of like our traditional real world frameworks. Um, I think that David David Hoffman from Bankless has written quite a bit about the concept of Ether as like a triple point asset for a while. Um, and when it finally does move to ETH2, um, if it's successful, which I think it will be, uh, Ether will have capital asset properties from staking. It will have commodity-like properties from its ability to transform uh, into different use cases. And it will also have store value properties from being the underpinning of like its whole decentralized economy. Um, and so you could make a case for all these alternative L1s that their native assets perform the same three functions within their own ecosystems. I do think that you know while the economics all broadly fall into the same bucket here, the specialization or optimization of each network is gonna be um, unique to its approach. So. Like Bitcoin, we know is famous for never really changing. It will, although it doesn't change, um, its its narrative is always going to be changing. Uh, Ethereum is kind of known as the smart contract platform that prioritizes decentralization over everything. You know, Solana trades this for speed, and the list just kind of goes on and on. Which is, uh, you know, sort of fascinating because that used to be Ethereum's thing, right? Ethereum used to be, we have, we have, because Bitcoin used to, and people don't even remember this, but sending Bitcoin used to be expensive. Back, back in, back in my day, sending Bitcoin was not cheap. Um, and, and that was one of the things that the Ethereum people harped on. And now sending Bitcoin is very cheap. You, you could do it for, for literal pennies. You can send uh, Bitcoin to your friends, you know, whether it be on Strike, whether it be on Lightning Network and, and the actual, Network fees are are far less, but it's slower. Ethereum is very fast, but it is expensive now. And I I, I have never uh, used Solana, but I I am assuming that Solana right now is kind of a best of both worlds, where it's both very fast. And I mean, what are what are you know gas fees or network fees like sending Solana or Cardano right now? Well, so uh, just to to go back to your point on Ethereum, um, like while it it might take only uh, a handful of seconds to process a transaction, um, it's still extremely slow compared to these other platforms. So like Ethereum, you can estimate to wait, I don't know, between like 10 and, and 60 seconds for your transaction to get processed. And you're going to be paying pretty high gas fees if, if you want to do that. Um, but on Solana, for example, um, the way that it's designed is ultimately just for, for pure speed and, and low payment cost. Um, I think it costs maybe I don't know, like a tenth of a penny to send something across the network or um, just engage in like a basic transaction. And, you know, with the way that it's designed, you can uh, guarantee that your, your um, transaction will be processed or dropped out of, of the transaction queue within 30 seconds. Um, when it is actually processed, you know, it takes like uh, less than a second to do so. So that is, I mean, that that's pretty wild. That's pretty valuable. I mean, that is sort of like what, how long does a, like a Visa Swift transaction take? Like now obviously sending a wire takes like weeks, but a, a Visa transaction is what, like two, three seconds. And that is, sort yeah. of, I mean, that, I, that originally I, was one of the ideas of crypto was to, was to be the Visa killer. 
yeah, and I think about that all the time whenever you know I pull out like my tap to pay card um, at the store, and you know I wait. I usually try to count it. It's usually like two and a half seconds or something for um, me to like put the card up and then for it to say like confirmed. Um, you know, this stuff is going to be that fast, if not faster, where you, know, you just hold up your phone, or you scan your wallet, um, and it, it's confirmed relatively quickly. Like Solana is already at that pace. Um, however, <laughs> like Solana has a lot of flaws as well, where um, just with different technical things, um, the network will have a lot of hiccups. Sometimes blocks aren't being processed the way that we would expect them to. Um, but ultimately, like all of these smart contract platforms are going to converge onto um, a super fast processing time, I think, with um, enough time in the future. So, you know, as we're as we're sitting here talking, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm realizing is that the, the next discussion point we have is about, you know, layer one implementation in daily life for non-crypto native folks. And, you know, one one thing I can say for sure is that if I was trying to explain this to, you know, my dad or my mother-in-law or something, the even even if they were able to grasp like, you know, that your 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 all your money is in Bitcoin instead of dollars or whatever, the thing that they would immediately tune out about was, okay, you need Bitcoin for this, you need Ethereum to do these transactions, and you need to be able to convert it all to Solana to do it as fast as possible. <laughs> and then if yes. you want if you want to have a savings account, you need to have it in luna right or or anchor or whatever and like that then then you're starting to see people's eyes glaze over because that it's all too complicated no one wants to have four different types of money right so i i and i i just kind of been asking this to to everyone who comes on you know to you what do you kind of think are are the biggest challenges for layer one implementation for non-crypto native folks and how can how can that be made easier? What what are the ways that we will see crypto come to these non-crypto native folks? You know, in the next five ten years. Yeah, great question. Um, I think in terms of just broad general crypto crypto adoption, like the biggest factor is going to be time. Um, like all of the all the fundamentals are in place. Um, but you know, we just need time to get like the, the developer tooling, the infrastructure to be built out more. Um, I like to make the comparison to the adoption and, and build out of the internet. Um, I think there's a, a chart out there from Raul Paul of, of Real Vision where he talks about crypto experiencing like a hundred percent average annual growth rate um, since 2016. But ultimately, like that's been the fastest growth of any technology in in the history of mankind. Um, even the internet only grew at a 60% rate and reached a billion users in 2006. Um, you know, if we use that growth rate as a baseline, uh, today's crypto ecosystem, I'd say is around like internet circa 2000 and, you know, extrapolating out um, six more years, you know, we hit a billion users in, in 2026, like what's crypto gonna look like then? I, I would imagine that you know, most of the technicalities that you just described between changing between all the different networks and stuff, um, interacting with smart contracts, all of that's going to get abstracted away over the next decade. Um, I was only two years old at the turn of the century, so I can't tell you firsthand what the internet was like back then, but from what I it heard- was, It was real slow. Uh, completely it was, it was, unrecognizable. It was, it, was, it was real slow and- 
yeah, the the things that people do on the internet. I I was really young, and in two thousand, I would have been eight years old. But I I mean, um, you know, we would we would get on the computer or whatever, and uh, most of the internet applications were really boring, or you would play uh, like stupid like online games on them. It was nothing. It was mm -hmm. it, it completely unrecognizable to what people are doing with the internet now. Like people people weren't even really using email then. Um, and uh, you were like scared to put your credit card number in because it might get stolen. It was it was far less secure and comfortable than it is now. Yeah, so I'd, I'd attribute that kind of stuff, um, you know, number one to like the infrastructure getting built out, you know, connection was dial up. Um, but once we finally had like broadband stuff in place, you know, the internet got a lot faster. And then the other half of the coin is um, the network effects of having online databases and information curation, um, all in one place available to anyone that was all in its infant stages back then. Um, but, you know, you fast forward a decade to um, like 2008 Facebook and you, you begin to see actual businesses building um, platforms on top of these, these internet rails, which ultimately democratized every aspect of, of communication. <laughs> the reason that we're, we're on this podcast together right now. Um, and, you know, another decade after that, um, just the, the entire landscape changes completely again. So, I mean, compare that 20 to 30 year adoption curve to crypto, and it just becomes a lot more apparent, I think, to where we're heading. Um, you know, we have a ton of developer activity coming into Web3. Um, and like, ask anyone, you don't hear anyone coming into crypto and then heading back to like their Google or Facebook jobs. Like, no, the, the net in the, the net flow is an inflow. Um, and with more people, you know, contributing their, um, uh, everything that they know from like the web two world and translating that into web three, I think that you give this like three or five more years and those network effects really become more apparent and we see more like actual use cases. I think if I had to point to actual usable uh, crypto things for the average person right now, I could list them on like one hand. Uh, you have like maybe a couple applications on like Solana. There's a, a new a game called Step N, which is basically like a, a move to earn fitness game and you get rewarded um, from getting more steps in a given day. Um, and you can upgrade your different NFT shoes and stuff. That's cool. Um, but like to me, the adoption is only going to go so far because it costs $1,500 to get the required NFT shoe. Um, and, you know, if we don't, if we don't rethink like the models of this stuff, um, you know, we're not going to reach that mass adoption capability. Yeah. One, one of the things I talked about with Eric was just like a very simple, like you call your, you call your Edwards Jones, your Edward Jones guy, or, you know, your financial advisor. And you're like, you know, I want, uh, two percent of my my Roth IRA held in in Bitcoin and like you know that that's the kind of thing that you can't really do right now. Um, you know there are ways for uh, traditional finance to to hold Bitcoin and Ethereum and and there are some firms you know trading in NFTs or whatever, mm -hmm. but it's still it's still pretty specialized. Okay. Now uh, the 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 Bitcoin people and and they just had their conference in Miami would say. It is, you know, it, it's malpractice of us to have not brought up um, the Lightning Network right now. And I guess, you know, it also is very important to remember that 
the financial concerns specifically that I'm speaking of are uh, from a financially privileged um, state of mind where like, I, I don't, you know, of course, inflation and everything, but we don't really have to worry about our currency going to zero or our assets being frozen by uh, a totalitarian, uh, totalitarian government uh, the way you would if you lived in Afghanistan or Nigeria, you know, places where they actually are using a lot of Bitcoin. But I, I, I did find, you know, kind of the big announcement from Bitcoin Miami that, uh, you know, basically like it was just going to become a lot easier to spend Bitcoin for daily transactions, which used to be a huge thing, right? That used to be that, you know, 20, 2015 Bitcoin, buying, uh, buying a cup of coffee with Bitcoin was like kind of the goal. And as you mentioned earlier, the narrative around Bitcoin has really changed um, from being, you know, ease, ease of transaction to being a, a store of value. And so kind of the last thing I wanted to close on here was the idea of spending Bitcoin, Ethereum, whatever, as money, or is the more interesting application eventually some sort of translatable stable coin that is more freely spent that is backed by crypto assets yeah um i so i think that the the overall like announcements coming out of bitcoin miami you know the the robin hood stuff and and strike are all just you know extremely positive for the adoption of crypto altogether. like the goal is to spend these things at the end of the day um, that's what they're there for However, uh, my personal uh, my personal viewpoint is that stable coins are kind of like the killer app for uh, all of crypto, and I think that's um, what's really important for us to to get embedded into the infrastructure for like the payments case. Uh, obviously, like if if you can spend your Bitcoin buy some Chipotle or something uh, through Strike, like people who uh, don't value their Bitcoin as much will probably choose to do that. Um, and ultimately the market decides that. But uh, I think most people prefer to spend things in uh, a stable currency like, like dollars. And for us to kind of reach that future, uh, like you mentioned, I think we need to have some sort of stable coin backed by harder assets. Um, but ultimately it has the flexibility of adding like that credit layer into the economy. Um, like if you look at how things work today, like we aren't paying with hard assets, uh, we're paying with with dollars, which are ultimately at the subject of, of the Federal Reserve and the U.S.'s monetary policy. Um, and I, I just don't think to me personally, it makes much sense to spend like my hard earned Bitcoin when I could ultimately have like a lower cost from paying uh, in the form of credit. And if you and, and that's the interesting thing is if you really want to get into the the nitty gritty of it is when I when I like 97% of the time when I'm making a transaction, I'm not even doing it. I'm saying my bank will pay you later and I'll pay the bank, which is uh, interesting when you compare that to crypto, right? When when you would compare like, you know, there there's some sort of like crypto element of credit that I mean, maybe exists and maybe someone's built it and I don't even imagine, but like, you know, the way, how many, I mean, how many people use a credit card versus using cash or a debit card? Like so many, like, I, I don't know if anyone I know has their, their primary medium of transaction being actual cash that they own. Normally it's credit that then they are paying back in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And I mean, the beauty of all of this is it's, it's not like Bitcoin will be the only thing embedded into these payment systems. Like, of course, um, like as soon as these other networks are more mature, like, yes, I will be able to choose between spending my, my BTC or my USDC when I go to the checkout line. Um, and, you know, maybe there will be some sort of, of new fintech company that builds up where it automatically calculates what like the cheapest uh, payment form out of whatever basket of assets you hold is. And, you know, you'll just say like, I'm paying through this, kind of like you said, where you're paying through your bank. And then they actually handle everything on the back end. Um, just the entire design space is so open. So um, I, I always just push back against anyone that try to, tries to get into the whole like Bitcoin or Ethereum maximalist camps um, and just try and keep an open mind with um, kind of like the design space we have in front of us. Yeah, I think I think keeping an open mind is good. And I think you, uh, you know, certainly there you, you miss out on gains and and missing out on gains is one thing. But I think you also miss out on a lot of cool stuff because there is cool stuff being built on non Bitcoin chains and on non Ethereum change, which I guess I should uh, take my own advice because I haven't really done much with Tezos or uh, or, or Solana or, or Cardano or whatever. But uh, we we're gonna go ahead and and wrap up here. Why don't you um why don't you tell us a little bit about Masari and how someone could uh, could interface with your work if they're interested in this conversation? Yeah, so um, we are live at, uh, at www.masari.io. Um, you can find some of my research under um, just the, the general research category that we have. Um, we offer all sorts of charting and data tools um, and offer. Um, different subscription tiers for access to different parts of our platform. Um, you can find me specifically, I hang out most often on Twitter. My handle is at Chase Devins. And yeah, happy to have any conversations with people about crypto in the future. All right. Well, there we go, everyone. That was that was Chase Devins from Masari. I uh, hope that you guys enjoyed that conversation. And of course, we will be back next week with more. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.